0: Everybody, thank you for joining us for this live stream message on Good Friday from the neighborhood church. About 30 minutes ago, uh, my six year old asked, Hey, are you doing church tonight for Good Friday? And I said, Yes. And as soon as I said yes, she goes, Well, it's not really church, but it's kind of church. I said, I guess you're kind of right. If you joined us for any live streams before, you've probably heard me say that this is just a piece of the puzzle. Uh, it's really just an encouragement and an affirmation of this really significant day in the church year. This is Good Friday, and in a few minutes, after I pray and read some scripture, I'm going to give you at least three reasons why this Friday is actually Good. I think by now we have all come to terms with the fact that the biggest weekend for Christians is going to happen in our homes. This is different, but I don't think it's a catastrophe. And here's why. If you've hopped on some live streams before for our church and on this Facebook page, you might notice that my environment is a little bit different. I've moved from my dining room table right smack dab into my living room, and I am sitting on a church pew. Now, we bought this bad boy a few years ago from a salvage yard slash antique place about an hour south of town, and the guy that sold it to us told us that this church pew came from a little country Catholic church. So I'm sitting here in my living room on this pew, talking to you all, looking on your phones or your computer screens, or maybe you're playing this back later because you've got other things going on on this beautiful Friday. But as I sit here in this church pew, I'm realizing that this might be a first. It's a first for me to observe Good Friday from home. But I think it's probably safe to say it's a first for this church pew, that it's living just as we are in this unusual time in this unusual holy week but here's what's comforting is that this church pew has for all intents and purposes probably lived through a lot of different kinds of church gatherings i just got to believe that this isn't its first good friday i got to believe that Sunday, Lord willing, won't be its first Easter Sunday. The truth is that while we're distanced, we are still present to the crucified King. And on Sunday, Lord willing, we will still wake up and celebrate the risen King. But tonight, we're gathering together virtually to reflect upon the crucified King crucified God. It's remarkable. And I'm going to tell you at least three reasons why this Friday really is good. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to read a passage from Mark. Mark chapter 15. That's in the New Testament. There's these stories called gospels. Matthew wrote one, Mark wrote one, Luke wrote one, and John wrote one. And we've been walking through the gospel of Mark in our time leading up to this Really sacred and special weekend for Christians the world over. So before I read from Mark chapter 15 and give you three reasons why this Friday really is good, I would like to pray. Can we pray together? Wherever you sit, wherever you hear this, I am confident that God is near to you. Whether you even know Him or not, I believe that He is longing to be gracious to you. So, it's our turn to be present and awake and aware to him. So would you just take a deep breath, exhale. You have walked and done what you needed to do today, but we have this moment, we have this breath, and God is with us. Most merciful Father, I'm reminded in your word that, that John says that you are love, and that whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. So most merciful Father, Creator, Sustainer, Lover of all that you have made, may we live and abide in your love. Lord Jesus Christ, the Crucified One, would we abide in you as you abide In us. Holy Spirit. Breath of God. Filling and moving and working and renewing. Would you renew us. And all the world. Push back sickness. Illness. And may your power and presence be upon us. Wherever we are. For you are near. May we pay attention and be present. To your presence. We ask this in the strong name. Of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, again, it's good to be with you here in this live stream message on this sacred and holy day that we know as Good Friday. I hope you have joined me in Mark chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading in verse 25. Hopefully you had a chance to follow through the Stations of the Cross. If not, it's on our homepage. There's a link that you can click and do this virtual prayer. But for those of you that need reminding, Jesus has been arrested. He's been beaten and mocked and falsely accused and ultimately condemned to die in a most gruesome way. He was condemned to be crucified. So we pick up this story in Mark chapter 15, verse 25. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So three hours later, at noon, Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. So someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, and put it on a staff, and they offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. Let's pause there real quick. Maybe you're like me, and when you read these scenes, um, you're struck by some of the insertions there. That's because when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record this most famous execution, They don't give us a philosophy on sacrifice. They don't give us some theology or theory of atonement, which is what some Christian circles talk about. They don't even actually give us a spirituality of something to attain or try to live up to. They actually just give us some bald-faced historical accounts of this gruesome scene. As if they're like, hey, it's just enough to record this thing. Because can you believe we're killing God's son? We're going to talk about these snapshots and these historical Moments, but I paused here because this one is really interesting. Because Jesus has quoted a psalm. It's Psalm 22, and he quotes it in the spoken language of his day when he says, Eloi, Eloi, Lama sabactani," which translates to, My God, my God, why have they forsaken me? But when he says Eloi, they might think he's saying Elijah, the name Elijah. And they might also think that he's looking around, everybody's hurling insults at him, even the dudes on either side of him, and he's crying out to someone, anyone who can help him. So it makes sense that they might believe that he's calling out for Elijah because that dude was a very famous hero of their faith, who they believe went up to heaven to be with God. So maybe he's looking for anyone that can help him. And it's very interesting that some of the last words recorded by Jesus from the cross is actually an open-ended question that speaks to the suffering and forsakenness and loneliness that even the Son of God Himself can feel. This is staggering and powerful. Which is what makes the next verse even more painful. In verse 37, Mark says, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who is a Roman military official, somebody who is a part and complicit with his execution, looks up. He stood there in front of Jesus. He saw how he died and he said, surely this man was the son of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. There is something about the way that Jesus died that alerted this centurion to the fact that this might actually be The Son of God. This is remarkable. And so I want to give you three reasons why this Friday is good, even if it means the death of the Son of God. But I need you to know from the outset that I plan to talk just for the next few moments, give you these three snapshots, talk about the text that we just read. But I can't even begin to scratch the surface to sum up everything that could be said about the cross of Jesus. And how can you really sum up all the reasons for and the ramifications of the most famous execution in human history? You can't. No one can. Which is why I feel for my people, my brothers and sisters and friends, that have to go to funerals and say eulogies. You know what I'm talking about? The eulogy? It's different from the obituary, right? The obituary is the thing that used to get printed in the paper or put on a website, and it's just the facts, right? It's the shorter one that says when they were born, when they died, the family they left behind, the places they lived, the jobs they did, maybe a few personal notes, but it's just the facts, right? The eulogy, on the other hand, man, this is darn near impossible. And this is why I feel for these people, you all that have had to give eulogies. You're standing before a room full of people who have been touched by a unique human life. And their job for the next few minutes is to try to speak some kind of words or bear some kind of witness that sums up an entire human life. I mean, all the ups and downs, all the joys and sorrows, all the highs and lows, all the idiosyncrasies, all the relationships, all the hobbies. This is hard. Can they even begin to sum up A whole life or a whole death and what it means? Of course not. Which is why I think the best thing they can do, and I would bet you the best eulogies that you've heard, they take the huge life lived and they boil it down to some significant snapshots. Okay? Here's what I mean. You, You know what I mean, but let me describe it. They begin to talk about how they used to play together when they were children or their crazy college days or, oh, I'll never forget when we went on that trip. And suddenly they're talking about this particular historical instant that all of a sudden everybody in the room starts nodding and saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether or not they were ever there, there was something about that significant snapshot that boils down something about that person that resonates with everybody in the room. They start to talk about that conversation they had, that significant moment or holiday, and everybody in the room starts nodding their head in agreement because that significant snapshot moment somehow connects to a thread Of this person's lived experience as well. They boil down a life lived into these significant snapshots and moments that, taken on their little self, become indicative of a larger story and picture being told. Before our pandemic and this quarantine, we started this series for the season of Lent, which is the season that leads up to this weekend. Easter, and when we started this, I I was wrestling and thinking through this big idea, and the big idea is this, that the life that Jesus lived is the walking embodiment of the love and reign of God, okay, the life that Jesus lived. Was the walking, living, breathing, teaching, healing, touching, lepers and sick people, welcoming outcasts, challenging establishment, challenging the religious mores of the day, challenging the biblical powers of the day. It's the walking embodiment of the love and reign of God. When I say the reign of God, I mean the way that God rules and where what he wants done is done. Jesus is what it looked like with skin on Okay? But here's the thing about the life that Jesus lived. It was not just an embodiment of the love and reign of God. It was intentional. It was purposeful. Jesus was moving through these towns, and everything he did was headed toward this Friday. And so this is why I want you to think of the cross not as some accident, or some failure of the Jesus revolution. Jesus, that lived so intentionally and so purposefully, was living his life, the walking embodiment of the love and reign of God. So it follows that if his life was headed toward this moment, where all the powers that be, all the evil, all the darkness, swirl around and try to do their worst to Jesus, it follows that his death is actually the clearest snapshot and embodiment of the love and reign of God. It was not an accident. The life that Jesus lived was headed toward this moment. He knew it. He saw it. He began to sense it more and more the closer it got. It was not incidental. It was intentional. And this is actually good news. And there's three reasons why Jesus, who embodied the love and reign of God, went to the cross, and we can call it good. Here's the three reasons. The cross defeats evil. The cross reveals God. The third thing is, the cross forgives sin. These are three significant snapshots that Mark is alerting us to with his historical nuggets to try to point to why we can actually call this Friday good. Because if I could eulogize this death, and have a little bit of a funeral for Jesus, if I could even boil down the cross that defeats evil and reveals God and forgives sin, if I could even boil that down further in a eulogy, I would give you one word, and it's love. That the cross of Christ, regardless of what you heard, if there is one word to say, it is love. Love is in the center of the orbit of the cross that defeats evil, reveals God, and forgives sin. Let's get back into our story. Let's unpack these statements. I've just got a few more minutes, and I'd love it if you could stick with me and hold on to the end. Here's the first one. The cross defeats evil. When Mark, I told you earlier, is not giving us a philosophy or a spirituality, he's giving us a history. And the truth is that Jesus lived and died in a particular time, in a particular place, with particular powers that be. And Jesus was constantly running afoul of the religious establishment. So he gets arrested. He gets taken into a trial. And they are really bent out of shape by the comments that Jesus has made. And so the Jewish leadership want to get rid of him. So you see them in the scene we read mocking and accusing him. But above the Jewish powers in Jesus' day, there were the Roman powers. And the governor of that region in which Jerusalem was, was a guy named Pilate. You've probably heard about Pilate. Now, Pilate hears the charge from those powers that be, and they say he's claiming to be a king of the Jews. And then he says, okay, let's crucify him, because this is what we do to kings that try to bring a new reign and will under our nose. We're going to show them what happens to kings So he writes out the inscription, the charge, like the mugshot, right? And he says, the king of the Jews. And he puts it on the post of the cross, and the Jewish leadership are like, no, 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 no. you made a mistake. You should have said that he was um, claiming to be a king. And he says, no, no, no. Another gospel says, I wrote what I wrote because Pilate, man, this dude was petty, and he took an opportunity to twist that knife. And he says, you don't think he's the king of the Jews? I'll call him the king of the Jews. What does it matter to me? But Mark records this mocking derision the Jewish religious elite that had missed and rejected Jesus as king. The Roman political oppressors want to demean Jesus as king. You see them mocking and torturing and nailing him to a cross. And these powers are pooling together their worst to Kill someone. But in reflecting on the cross, the church has historically said, yeah, but it was also these powers underneath those powers. These powers of evil and darkness that tend to kind of stir the pot and do all the kinds of things that have resulted in a world that loves to kill and demean innocent people. Paul was one of these Jewish authorities. But he met Jesus after the cross and became a follower of the way. And he wrote in a letter in the New Testament called Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, he says, actually, what happened on the cross was not a defeat, it was actually a victory. And this is powerful because anybody standing on the cross is looking at that saying, dude, this is the opposite of a victory. But he said in Colossians 2, no, it was on the cross that he disarmed the rulers and powers and authorities. Not just the ones you see, but even the ones you don't see. And what he means by disarming them is he said the worst they could do is kill you. But Jesus on the cross defeats death by dying. Upon reflection, when we see that Jesus comes through death in order that we might follow him to where even death can't touch us, if they don't have fear and if they don't have death, what do they have? This is why the cross is good news. Because Jesus defeats evil and is enthroned on the cross under a placard that was written sarcastically that Mark wants us to see is it's good because this king defeats death by dying. And if we need not fear fear or death, what really can evil do to us ultimately? Now that's the first thing. The cross is good news because the cross defeats evil. The second thing, the second statement, the reason why we can call it good is because the cross reveals God. This is really powerful because If Jesus is the son of God, as he's nailed to a cross, of all the things he could say, of all the psalms, those ancient Hebrew poems, and Psalm 22 is the one he chooses to quote. Psalm 22 has a line that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a poem about a guy that's innocent, that's suffering, that's getting mocked and derided, but ultimately God will vindicate him. But the truth is, um, I don't want to try to explain away what Jesus meant, I think Mark and the gospel writers leave that historical snapshot in there to tell us something about what God is like. And let me tell you what God is like is someone who finds us in suffering because he knows suffering. God finds us in brokenness and pain because God allowed himself to be broken and in pain. I love this book called The Crucified God. It's a pretty big deal in theological circles, and this is the 40th anniversary edition. The guy that wrote it is a guy named Jürgen Moltmann, and he coined this term, The Crucified God. But because this is the 40th edition, his um, student and friend, Miroslav Volf, wrote an introduction to this edition. And I'm going to read you what Miroslav Volf wrote, talks about when Jürgen Moltmann found this God who knows suffering. This is from the introduction from Miroslav Volf talking about his mentor, Jürgen Moltmann. So Jürgen Moltmann was barely 20 years old, was in World War II, and he found himself in a prison It was there that he got a New Testament in the Psalms, and he read them for the first time. Jürgen Moltmann was a secularist, was not a believer, not a Christian, but he's in prison. He reads the New Testament, and he sees Jesus nailed to a cross, quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wolf writes, young Moltmann, afflicted both by captivity and crushing guilt, thought here is, is someone who understands me. Moltmann described this as an experience of being found by God rather than of finding God himself. God spoke to him with bloodied and parched lips in cries of pain and abandonment. How many of you have had an experience where you felt found by God rather than the other way around? I would bet that it was in moments where you thought God had forsaken you, left you for dead, friends encircle you and say, God must not be good. But if you would listen quietly to the bloodied and parched lips of Jesus, you see actually that God is not an absent participant looking at our world broken by diseases and poverty and need, you see that he was willing to enter into it. And so when we feel that we're forsaken, when we feel that we're suffering and bloodied and broken, we can look to Jesus and hear him say, I know what The invitation the cross gives us is to see the embodiment of the love and reign of God even when it's mixed with sorrow and suffering. So many of us wonder about why would God allow this or why would God do this and I think it starts at the foot of the cross. Whatever answer you want to to give, you have to look at the bloodied Savior on the cross and say, God was in this, taking on our shame, our suffering, our sickness, and the cross must be the starting point and ending point of what you think God looks like, not as the always cause of suffering, but as the always enduring and being with us in suffering kind of God. It's not just who God is, it's also what God does meeting us in suffering, and trying to enter in and pull us through it in life and forgiveness, which is the third thing. I said earlier that the cross defeats evil, the cross reveals God, but also the cross forgives sin. And this is probably what you would have said, yeah, duh, because I bet if we went outside and found my neighbors walking around the street, 10 out of 10 of them, if I asked them, hey, why did Jesus die on the cross? They would have probably said, oh yeah, it was like forgiveness of sins, right? So this is interesting, because when Jesus breathes his last, Mark records this interesting snapshot of the temple veil being torn in two from top to bottom. And by the way, this curtain was like pretty serious. It was no slouch of a curtain. It was a curtain that was symbolic of the way in which you had to come to God And you had to come to God ritually pure and clean. And in fact, in certain portions of the temple, behind curtains, priests could only go once a year. So there's something going on in this snapshot that speaks to what Mark thinks about the cross and why this Friday really is good. And that's because when the temple veil gets torn, it's as if he's saying, hey, the temple is closed for business. The place where heaven and earth meet is no longer the temple or the Holy of Holies or where you're over there, but I'm over here. I think it's in the person of Jesus. And if the temple is closed for business, it means that if anybody can, they, they can run to Jesus and find not a veil, but just a bloodied Savior inviting us to follow him even through death in order to find new life. You see, I need you to understand this, that Jesus doesn't just buy God's forgiveness as if God demanded and exacted just this much blood, although that's a theory that gets circled around in a lot of our Christian circles. I want you to know that Jesus doesn't buy God's forgiveness. Jesus embodies God's forgiveness. It's what God does. Jesus asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where is the father in this? Paul tells us God in that moment was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. Jesus on the cross forgives sins because we sinned all our sins, all our shame, all our derision all our mocking, all our violence. He absorbs it all, turns the other cheek, and says, Father, forgive them. This is what God does, and it's embodied on the cross in Jesus. If you had one word to say about the cross, don't tell me wrath. Tell me love, because the Father So loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would look to him, believe in him, would not perish but have the life that God gives. That's a part of his new age and it's eternal. God demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were sinners, Christ still died for us. God loves and longs to forgive. It doesn't just magically happen. We've got to run to the foot of the cross, behold Jesus, and say there's something about him. And we extend our hands and say, I believe you actually are the king. And we can accept and make that forgiveness real by crying out to him. That's why this is good news. One of my other favorite theologians, Dallas Willard, he was asked one time, was it hard for Jesus to forgive his executioners, which if you're thinking like me, dude, the guy was up all night, beaten, scourged, mocked, condemned, and led out to the crowded street and onto a hill and nailed to a tree, it would be hard to forgive. So the natural response is, well, sure, it would be hard. But Dallas Willard said, no, no, no. I think it was the most natural thing for Jesus to do. Because Jesus embodies the love and reign of God. He doesn't just tell us, hey, go forgive your enemies. At the cross, it's the clearest snapshot of what it looks like to find and accept and receive forgiveness. The cross is good news, and it's good this Friday, because the cross forgives sin, the cross defeats evil, and the cross reveals who God is. So if this eulogy was at all resonating with you, and the text that we see in the Bible and in the New Testament in particular, I hope I can help eulogize him rightly. Because I want you to know that he died because he loved this world, and he loved it to the end. He died because he loves you, and he loves you to the end. And we can look at the foot of the cross and say, This really is good because all of these snapshots that Mark and Matthew and Luke and John put together, all of the snapshots of the suffering and brokenness and sadness and bitterness that we are experiencing in our own history right now, they all find themselves orbiting around love. The clearest embodiment of the love and reign of God was in the life of Jesus that led to the death of Jesus, so that we could stand at the foot of the cross and say, even when we feel forsaken, broken, and even stir-crazy, we know that God is near to us. He has defeated evil. He has revealed Himself as a God who loves, and He has forgiven us. Should we run to Him and accept that forgiveness? So I want to close this eulogy, this message, with a prayer that I didn't make up, I didn't write. It was found and given to me. And it's called the Prayer to the Crucified Christ. And I want to close with these words. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love upon the hard wood of the cross so that all might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your Spirit, that we reaching forth our hands in love may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. I pray that you would know this love that loves us even to death and through death. I know it's a strange request, but if you are hearing this somehow, some way, and you need to talk about this love that Jesus shows us, would you find me on Facebook? Would you um, find us through our website? And if that's your first time, I really hope you will. And if you're a part of our church or our community, and you need to hear it for the 500th time, and you'd like to talk more about it, let's talk about it. Because we can never, never boil it down fully, but we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Good Friday is good because he loves us and he's revealed himself to us, he's forgiven us, and he's defeated evil. So may you be blessed. Hopefully you can join us Sunday as we finish this story at 10 a.m. right here on this page. Thank you. Blessings. Thank you for your attention and your time.